philosophy is about what is right in front our, of our noses and what we do to get behind that, not to make constructs and clever, uh, invent clever concepts, mm. uh, which is what much of philosophy nowadays consists of, uh, but to look at the way things are and try to get to the bottom. That's Eva Brand, distinguished tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, recipient of the National Humanities Medal, and author, most recently, of Feeling Our Feelings, What Philosophers Think and People Know. Today we hear from Eva about her work in philosophy and the liberal arts. We also get her take on the present condition of higher education in America, and her opinion about whether politics has a place in the classroom. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Common Ground. This is a special episode, the first of a two-part back-to-school series. The fall semester is, after all, about to begin. Students are moving into dorms. Professors are preparing syllabi, and we're all stealing ourselves for the November election. With that in mind, we've decided to host two episodes, both this week and next, that feature guests uniquely qualified to talk about higher education and the liberal arts. Next week, we'll have Louis Menand, professor of history at Harvard and contributor to The New Yorker, as well as Alan Charles Kors, professor of history at Penn and co-founder of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. This week, our guest is Eva Bran. Eva has been a distinguished tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, since 1957, and was dean there from 1990 to 1997. St. John's is a great books college. Students there don't have professors, but rather tutors, who read classic texts in the liberal arts and sciences with their students, mostly in chronological order, for four years. Each and every student thus undertakes essentially the same curriculum, a curriculum which really isn't much like what you get at a major university. For her work at St. John's and her defense of that college's brand of liberal education, as well as for her many publications on topics as varied as Abraham Lincoln, Homer, and the philosophy of time, Brand was awarded a National Humanities Medal in 2005. Today, we hear from her about the liberal arts, as well as her work in philosophy, and what place she thinks politics has in higher education. I hope you enjoy listening to the first episode of our Back to School series. Here's Eva Brand. It's Miss and not Doctor. No, it's never, we it's never use, never doctor. never use titles, yeah. What's the, um, why is that? We don't want an academic, we don't want academic distinctions. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter to us very mm -hmm. much. Uh, almost all my colleagues have uh, doctorates. Not all, but almost all. Some of the most um, highly uh, regarded ones, especially in the older days, didn't only had master's degrees. Um, you know, in the days when, when the master's degree was really the highest degree people usually went for. But uh, it's just uh, everything that has to do with academic distinctions uh, 
doesn't fit the kind of teaching we want to engage in, the kind of response we want from our students. And the reason uh, is because we don't want to be, uh, we don't present ourselves as authorities. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that the professors who do Maybe are trying to compensate <laughs> for something. Maybe shouldn't. Well, and I've also heard that professors, or rather, excuse me, tutors, often, often self-correct on a number of occasions. Uh, the tutors at St. John's actually take the courses that they're not familiar with, so they or no, they learn they teach some them. of the, they, they teach, teach them. them. They teach them. Yeah. You know, you come here, and uh, when you're appointed, you're thrown into an all-required program. Mm -hmm. So they do usually freshman uh, uh, classes, and they learn on the job and the students are accustomed tutors to tutors at st john's do have a there's a great deal of intellectual amity and comity between it's them it's a very friendly wow. faculty yeah. and this is not only because we're nice people mm -hmm. but it's because um it's essential to the way we teach you come in i was just explaining you get appointed, you come in, the dean has assigned you usually freshman classes, but you're doing things often that you've never done before. When I came, for instance, it, it was lucky, I had studied classics, so I knew our freshman uh, language class, mm -hmm. which is Greek, mm -hmm. or in which we... You studied archaeology, right? Particular. I studied archaeology, but archaeology, yeah. and uh, if you're in archaeology, in, Greek archaeology, right. after all, essentially classics. Greek, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was all right, but never. I, uh, I wasn't any good at mathematics, mm. that's <laughs> far as I know. Uh, I had one required, it used to be called Mathematics for Dummies, you know, <laughs> course in, in Brooklyn College, which I sort of barely passed. And here I was confronted with having to teach very elementary oh. but very real mathematics. So a lot depends, dependent, on my being able to get help from my older colleagues. I could pick up a phone any time, mm -hmm. and I was working at night preparing, and said, I don't understand this proposition. I could pick up the phone and ask for help. And that's uh, been the uh, ethos of the college ever since I've come. Well, that, that's so interesting because a lot of faculties at research universities are set up politically in a sort of adversarial fashion. Look, we have no, first of all, we don't allow politics in the classroom at all. If any, I had a colleague a few years, quite a few years ago, uh, a young man. Mm. I remember that he set up a table in our coffee shop, which is sort of the general venue where we all meet, have our, inter, uh, uh, our conversations with students. Uh, it was, uh, as I remember, a liberal sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And he had literature there. Well, he was told to stop it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, uh, that is not appropriate. And the notion of introducing current political ma uh, matters in class is absolutely taboo. I do have a, a couple questions about that, about politics, especially given the current political yes, situation yes. and what student, students or tutees may be feeling. Yes. But for, on, the, on the topic of friendship, yes. um, I was just reading your book, uh, Feeling Our Feelings, yes, your recent yes, book, yes. Um, What uh, Philosophers Think yes. and People Know. Um, and your prose, it struck me because I, I've, I've read a, 
a fair amount of uh, philosophy books or books on philosophy mm -hmm. or recent secondary texts, your prose is, in comparison, so clean and, and precise yet conversational as to give the impression that you're sort of just having a drink you're or a scotch my with heart Aristotle. Here. Well, it just it sounds a bit like you're just having a drink with the Socrates or Heidegger, and I I get the sense that this style can only come from having read these thinkers over and over. Yes. Do you consider these philosophers your sort of your sort of friends or your sort yes, of sparring partners? Yes, absolutely. After, after all, look, uh, twice a week for yeah. two hours in the evening, <laughs> we read books and talk about them with our students. Mm -hmm. That's for, uh, that makes uh, for 64 a year, you know, 32 right. weeks. Right. Uh, uh, 16 weeks of term, 33 weeks a year. I've read a number of these over and over. Right. We have four years worth. Others I've read on my own. Uh, they matter. Uh, and one of the things that rubs off is, in some of them, not others, uh, trying to write clearly and concisely. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, did you know that there's a book after this uh, in which there's an essay on the imaginative conservative. So I know that you write a lot for the imaginative conservative. So you, one of your essays in here is no, in there? No, no, I'll, I'll give you a copy. Oh, yeah. It's a little book. Uh, the first essay is on Herodotus, mm -hmm. whom I love. Mm. And the second essay is, is called The Imaginative Conservative. Do you know Winston Elliott? I do know Winston Elliott. Well, Eli Winston well Elliott enough. tells me yeah. that The Imaginative Conservative, the title, that he took that from an early writing of mine. Oh, no kidding. I didn't, I didn't well, know that. And I he? knew, because I've, I've spoken with Winston on, on a few occasions, and he's a good friend of, uh, of, of Gleaves, who I, I work yes. for, and I yeah. know that he just sort of approaches you as, as Luke Skywalker approaches Yoda, <laughs> if you'll get my... <laughs> you know, you so, know why that's yeah. funny? Why? I, I, but let me just tell yeah. you, uh, the, this uh, is, an, uh, is a long essay in which I set out what I think a true conservative ought to be like. Mm. Uh, not it turns out not to be so much political as psychological and uh, well I'll give it to you. So so me. not Trump, not Donald not, Trump. Okay. Not Mr. Trump. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, as far as Yoda is concerned, yes. you will be uh, amused to know that we have every year, the last just the week before the last or two weeks before the last weeks, the students mount a sort of festivity which they call reality. Mm. It's called reality. It um, includes, among other things, an exercise called Spartan Madball, in which the only rule is that no mechanized vehicle is allowed on the field oh, while uh. the two sides go at each other. <laughs> and uh, various other such things. And usually they put on a little skit. Mm. Uh, one year when I was a dean, they invited some of the Navy people, you know, our, mm. our visitors to come over, and they were the evil empire. <laughs> and I was given a sheet, and I was Yoga, Yoda. You were Yoda? I that was Yoda. Makes sense. So I appeared as Yoda <laughs> fighting the evil empire. So what year Yoda's was that? Do you remember which year this was? How many years ago? A long time long ago. Time it was ago? in the 90s when I was oh, dean. Good. I was dean for seven years.
The subtitle of your book, Feeling Our Feelings, is What Philosophers Think and People Know. And yes. frankly, this seems a bit, something clever, a bit mischievous going yeah. on with that uh, title. More what, than a little mischievous. More than a little What were you getting at? I was getting at this, look, at the moment, how shall I start? I believe that there is a noble populism, right. of which Lincoln is the great spokesman, and that there is a vulgar populism. Mm. And I will not say who the Fair spokesman of that enough. is, right? <laughs> and uh, so I'm, in a way, a populist, in the higher way, I hope. That's people. Right. I think they know things. Then they're the professors. Oh. <laughs> I'm not so sure they know things. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so you see what I mean. So and That's so you're I mean you're, su you're suggesting that what f what a lot of philosophers do or should do or the vocation of philosophy is to to sort of tell us what's right in front of our nose. I think, yes. Okay. That's a very good way to put oh, it. Okay. That, uh, the notion that philosophy is about what is right in front of our of our noses and what we do to get behind that, not to make constructs and clever, uh, invent clever concepts, mm. uh, which is what much of philosophy nowadays consists of, uh, but to look at the way things are and try to get to the bottom. Usually, uh, I mean, we say bottom, but it might be top. Yeah. In other words, one way to put it is, I think, philosophy and theology are not so different from okay. each other. Which, which philosophers or theologians most uh, attract you? Well, I think there's no question about Plato. Is, Plato yeah. And Plato is also in some way, uh, not for everyone, you know, we all differ. We all have different opinions about these things. We're not, we don't have a party line here. But uh, the uh, first philosophical reading our students do is Plato's Meno. Mm. And it's not for a f that there's a philosophical thesis that we want them to absorb. It's the notion of inquiry which is set out there. In other words, that it's possible to inquire into things visible and into things invisible. Mm -hmm. Now, that's why the Meno is uh, the first uh, philosophical work. Uh, before that, they read Homer for quite a while. That's the first thing they read. Well, what, what philosophical questions draw you the most, or what have you spent your most time writing about in the past 50 years? Uh, well, look, the, the main question always has to be whether there is something intelligibly transcendent that underlies everything, or whether what we see is all there is. That's the question. Very good. And you said with Plato on these questions, usually? Uh, yes. Okay, to, very to good. Tell. But yeah. I have to say, but, first of all, some of the, uh, what one would call platonic theory, mm. doesn't quite work. It is, it's not, uh, it has limitations, it has unanswered questions. Mm. Um, so it's not that I'm a Platonist. Mm -hmm. In fact, we don't have ists. You know, no one is an ist. At St. John's or at in general? At St. John's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a 
it's an ongoing inquiry in which we have, most of us, texts that help us more, mm. texts we think are really in some way wrong-headed. For instance, I'm a great admirer of Nietzsche, but I think it's wrong from top to bottom. <laughs> yeah. I admire him, incidentally, partly because of his wonderful style. Yeah, beautiful prose. Beautiful prose. Yeah. And I'm always surprised and amazed by how uh, philosophers who are very harsh and who see the world pessimistically often, like Hobbes, mm -hmm. often have the most beautiful style. Mm -hmm. Bacon, too. I mean, so, yeah. So you said, you said before that in the arts and humanities, usually what's done first is the best, and you've already said it Plato, and you said it Homer. Why do you suppose that is in your view? I don't know, and I don't even know that I quite believe it. Okay. Uh, I think, it, politically, I don't believe it's true. Mm -hmm. To me, the greatest statesman that I know of, you know, I was a history major and under, in, in undergraduate okay. college, at Brooklyn uh, but college? also from later reading, yeah. is Madison. Okay. And the finest and grandest democratic leader I know of is Lincoln. So I wouldn't say that it's just the ancients, just the but there is a kind of... And among the ancients, now to go the other way, I've Later in life, I discovered the pre-Socratics, Heraclitus and Parmenides. Um, and so really early is really great. Mm -hmm. And why is it? I think it's partly because there is a certain immediacy in those philosophers and what they're facing. They, they're the ones to whom all the grand terms of philosophy are very close and immediate. In fact, in some right. cases, they are the inventors. The way Parmenides is the discoverer of the notion of being, mm -hmm. which is the central philosophical notion, and Heraclitus is the discoverer of the notion of logos, mm -hmm. which is another central notion. So if you're first, you are apt to go about it in a more innocent and a more knowing in a grander and more specific way. In other words, you have everything going for you. Mm. Afterwards, it begins to be problems. And you know, uh, it's Aristotle who more or less invented the notion of philosophy as problem solving. Mm -hmm. And then you find that in Kant, who thinks philosophy is work, it's the work of solving problems for good and always. You don't, do you not conceive of philosophy in that manner as, as work? Look, or my most uh, there's a work I've literally read to shreds. Yeah. I could show you my German Kant. Oh, yeah? it's, it's apart, falling apart. Falling okay. Apart. Yeah. So I admire him, but it seems to me, in some way, false. Mm. So it's you know one of the things you learn is to admire things that aren't altogether, that you don't accept as true, but you see that there's a certain grandness. That, they, that it helps in some respects, morally speaking, there's something about Kant that is helpful in a pinch. Mm. You know, uh, do you, shall I explain what I mean? Please. The uh, so-called categorical imperatives says that you should 
do only whatever you could regard as universal. Right. That is, what, whatever your guiding maxim is, it should be such that it could become a universal right. law and right. you want everyone else to do it. This seems to be pretty crazy <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> Sometimes uh, what you do is very specific right. and there's no way to universalize it. On the one hand. And, oh, and there's another part of it. And the test that you've chosen right is that it hurts. Cut's very clear about that. Mm -hmm. uh, to be moral usually means to go, almost almost means to go against your own desire. Right. Well, I think that's really a little kooky. <laughs> I mean, you can't live always inhibiting right. yourself. But there are moments when this is absolutely right. You know, when push comes to shove, when you say to yourself, I do not want to do this. Mm. And you say, I must. Mm. That's Kantian. So there are ways of using uh, the texts that uh, it's a little bit cherry picking, mm -hmm. but it's not impermissible, I don't think. Well, you said something earlier about the, a sense of immediacy, like the, there's something about the reading the ancients that feels like they're talking directly to us, and there's a great sort of even moral urgency or relevance. Yes. You know, it's, it was funny, when we were, we were talking on the phone the other day, I was actually, I was in my office reading your book, Open Secrets, yes, Inward Prospects, <laughs> yeah, which, which is just a book of aphorisms that yes. you seem to have compiled over the years. there's another one coming out. There's another one coming out. Which I think I'm now 20 years older, yeah. therefore a little wiser. <laughs> well, you know, that's so interesting because I, I had been reading it for about 40 minutes and I felt like there, there, was, there was a, if I may say so, I mean, there's a great deal of intimacy in the book, of intellectual and even emotional intimacy yeah. that almost br it brought me up short when, yes. I, when you yeah. called and I was <laughs> hearing the voice of this you person whose secrets I was reading, open secrets rather. You have, so some of your aphorisms are practical and prescriptive. I, I, I particularly liked one, when seized by a revelation, take a hot bath. Yes. Um, but at, at other times, they're truly thoughtful and introspective, especially about love, where you write, love can be utterly selfish. It hopes for a chance to give comfort. So there are these very aphoristic phrases. What, what made you compile these little everyday insights that well, turn out not to know, be so everyday? I've been doing it for about 20 years. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't know what made me, but it's true that something made me. Yeah. Did you start out? So when you, I think the first one you said came from like 1973. Did you start out scribbling these thinking this is going to become a book in 20 years? Or did I you just want to? I never thought wanna... of it as being a book. Okay. Uh, I just thought that this is what I'm thinking. My memory is very imperfect. Right. Certainly about the various things I think. I'd really like to be able to, so to speak, look up my life. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so Oh, very good. Um, it, well, you've been teaching at St. John since 1957, and assuming that you've been, you've been writing uh, a lot of these little aphorisms uh, since around that time. Why have you stayed at St. John's all these years? I, look, I have to say that I haven't been here consistently. Oh. I had invitations to, to teach at Whitman College. Mm -hmm. uh, I've taught for shorter times in other places. Just, you know, to see the world a mm -hmm. little, get relief. 
the notion of leaving has never occurred to me, right. even if there was opportunity. What, why? It's the perfect setting for me. I think it's the perfect setting in itself. Okay, so the categorical imperative of perfect setting. Well, it's, uh, what is it that's perfect for me? First of all, the relation to our students. I like very much the mixture of formality and intimacy. We talk to our students about very serious things, but we don't allow it to get personal. Mm. And this way of being with each other, that is to be very serious about deep and personal things, but not in a personal way, this suits me very well. And I think it's good for the students. Uh, it goes together with our always calling each other by our last right. names. Right. Um, it, the way it's good for our students is that they learn. Most of them actually do learn that. Something which seems to be more important than anything else. I have this, this is kind of personal theory, yeah. that most of the world's disasters, human disasters, occur because people can't express themselves. They get angry, they go for war, right. they do various things simply because they have no way of formulating what it is that hurts them, what it is they want, how to go about getting it. Our students learn how to put their deepest and most personal feelings into articulate language mm. so that they actually know what it is they're feeling right. and what and that puts them on the way to doing something mm. about it. And I think this relationship that I'm talking about, which is deeply intimate and not personal, it sounds like a paradox. So, but it's the right thing. So you've, I mean, you've seen your students go through the, you know, the '60s, the radical '60s, yes. through the Reagan era, and they've arrived now at the age of Trump and Sanders. And what's, what's changed about your students, and how have you changed they in response? They haven't changed very they much. You know, in the '60s, when the rest of our, uh, of our students nationally were out demonstrating right. and wrecking the universities, okay. because yeah, although they managed to to make change come about, it wasn't a good change. Mm -hmm. It got worse rather than the, the next thing we had is where all these identity uh, studies, right, right, right. Um, which had a direct result of the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, our students had seminars. <laughs> Some of them went to Washington to demonstrate. Right. Most of them, we used to have extra seminars on, on uh, position papers, current ones, mm -hmm. and on, on uh, classical works. So, um, from that point of view, they weren't so different in the 60s. The one change I've noticed, and I think uh, other tutors agree with me, is that the present generation is closer to their parents than previous generations, particularly the uh, generation of the 60s, 60s and 70s. Closer yeah. to their actual, not more like their parents, but closer to them in a relationship? Just in frame. Oh, yeah, I in see. Yeah. Partly it has to do with the with iPhone, with cell phones. Oh, okay. Know? But I think it's also something about 
the uh, about the generational difference, which isn't mm -hmm. all that great. Were, st were students in the 60s more apt to throw off in local parent because they were well, they want to throw off in local parental we psychologists. Yeah. Yeah. When I first came in the in the late 50s, early 60s, we were in local parental, right. which mean which meant that our relations to them, um, to students was parental, which included having to section them, punish yeah. them, give them, make rules for them. We had intramural rules, you know, for instance, like the if a man and a boy and a girl were in a room together, uh -huh. the door had to be open a certain degree, that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, that went away. That went away in the 60s. And with it went away the sort of parental relation to them. They were now, we had to treat them as grown-ups. Do, do students... Uh, but this then, is let me do yeah. just yes. one more thing. Yeah. Then came the generation of trust no one over 30. Okay. We never had this fear. Okay. We just passed that by. Because... And was that because your students were already that way? They already knew they wanted to sort of learn from their tutors? Or? Yeah, because the relation between us and them was not between authority right. and, and uh, subservience. You, you said that you don't want to bring politics into the classroom. Uh, do your students want to politicize their education in any no, way? No, no. Look, we have some... On occasion, uh, we've had very lively... It called itself a political forum, yeah. and they inv invited you know people from Washington. We're so close to the centers of power here, and uh, so we had politics on campus of all kinds. We had a gay union and that mm. kind of thing. Uh, we've got student several student publications. They express their political opinions one way or the other. Uh, I wouldn't say. If you ask me what the general uh, coloration of our student opinion was, I don't think they're not radical. Right. They're not particularly liberal, nor particularly conservative. They're a mixture. Mm -hmm. Some of them are what they are simply because their parents are. For a while, we had communists, mm -hmm. and if, I remember quite a long time ago, and I remember talking to them, and they were communists because they were. <laughs> because their parents were, mm -hmm. they were conservative communists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, so they, I think you'll find find all kinds of student opinion, but it's not the usual campus atmosphere. One question I had, and it's related to the question of politics in your students, is, um, I mean, so many of them. Uh, so many of them come in knowing, come to St. John's and study under you knowing that what they're going to get is a great books education or class. They have education. to know that because they're yeah. committing themselves to an all-required program. Right. They have no choice. What, what do you say to students who might be wondering why they should care about the classics when there's such political upheaval going on? What did you say to them in the 60s and what, did you say, what would you say to them now? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to say to the graduates and center. Oh, they very good. On this. Yes. Uh, students often ask me, and I'm thinking of a particular student, actually graduate, we have graduate students. Okay. Uh, I, what, how does a St. John's education help me to change the world? Right. I say, for the better. They are utterly dumbfounded. <laughs> it occurred to them. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, then, 
I, I go on in, in the graduation speech to say, look, changing the world is a very large project. Right. It's a big world, yeah, of which you probably don't know very much. Mm -hmm. um, start small. You'll be probably working at some point or other in an office. And the office will have a water cooler or valley or whatever. Post a note and say, would someone like to read some poetry with me? So just a really good poem, say by Wallace Stevens. Right. Get together and read poetry. My sense is that what the world needs is not large, usually ineffective programs mm -hmm. with unintended consequences galore, but small local interventions that do something here and now which is actual. And the best thing one can actually do is to educate oneself and others. Be a teacher, be a preacher, be an organizer of a study group, mm -hmm. begin that way. Then, you know, sometimes political action will develop from that, but you'll know what you're doing instead of starting to with the intention of doing great things and having not a foggiest notion what mm -hmm. the great things might be. You know, you wrote, um, you reviewed a few years ago, you reviewed uh, Martha Nussbaum's book, uh, Not For Profit, um, which I think does, it does identify a problem, which is the failure of uh, liberal education in, in large research institutions. But one thing you say is that you're distrustful of a lot of these apocalyptic prognostications is the phrase yes. you use and you, and you tell teachers to soldier on locally and continue to believe that students have and souls and want to develop them. The thing with Martha Nussbaum is that she thinks she's talking about liberal education okay. but she's actually talking, talking about a politically skewed education. You know, the um, uh, actual uh, the act actual recommendations she makes right. all have to do with a certain view of the world mm. which anyone can immediately recognize as highly liberal. It's it's fine. Why not be highly liberal? Right. But why skew an education that way? The education is supposed to make you ready to choose for yourself, not to be driven into certain points of view. Is there any way that, that well, tutors or professors can teach that doesn't even slightly politicize? Is there a truly apolitical well, education? They can, maybe the answer to that very well put question, yeah. I think, is probably not. But you can neutralize it by owning up to it. I see. You, you say, look, I have a certain view of the world here. Mm -hmm. Tell me what the opposite view would be mm -hmm. and what you think of it. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think I probably have a certain view of the world, right? right? <laughs> In fact, I'm sure I do. <laughs> but if I'm talking to a student about political question, and we, as I say, it's never current politics. It's always what you might call political philosophy. You, so. can, I, can I quote you here? You have a great line in Open Secrets and Reprospects. You say, when people get hot under the collar, it's politics. When people get interested, it's political philosophy. That's exactly it. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm talking to a student. And uh, I, I might say at some point, look, you probably recognize that this is not a totally unskewed mm -hmm. view. Now tell me what you're thinking. Or 
a student will, uh, or we'll read a book. We read Marx, for instance. One question is, formulate the opposite view. Right. So, the important thing is to think of both sides. What, how a student makes up his or makes up her mind in the end, that's not my business. It's interesting to me, but I shouldn't have much to do with that. The point is to have seen both sides and to have thought it out, and to have thought it out not on the basis of current passions, mm -hmm. but of sort of deeper considerations. You've called yourself a conservative. Are, in what sense are you a conservative? In the in the most uh, in the most ordinary sense of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay. But if it's broke, fix it. <laughs> well, because and I was sort of I was wondering this too because. I, to a certain degree, I, cons conservatism is used as a term in a lot of different ways to mean a lot of different things, and thus it's, it sometimes feels like a meaningless term that's thrown either as a as a rallying cry or as as a, as a demoni ter term of demonization. I mean, so I've always, when I've read your work, I've always thought of you as a conservative in the sense that you're trying to um, remind us of and get us to throw ourselves into our deep. Uh, li uh, literary and philosophical tradition. That's, of course, much, I mean, what the way I just put it yes. is... Uh, well, it's a practical it's sort of, yeah. yeah. But what's really behind it is the notion that there's wisdom behind us, okay. that in order to understand where we are, mm. we have to know something about, not the history, which right. is too, uh, too various to really apprehend properly, but the tradition, which is the written background. We have to know what other things have been thought, mm -hmm. what one might think, especially what founders mm -hmm. thought, and that uh, from that point of view, conservatism is conservationism. I'm a conservationist right. of tradition, you might say. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, well, that's... So, what a... Another, another bit of uh, Professor Nussbaum's work that I like and that I think you probably have something to say about is how would you respond to the argument that higher education should just produce skilled laborers for the workforce, or just people who are going to get jobs? That's deadly. Yeah. Because what is a skilled laborer this decade will be a laid off. Yes. Yeah. Well, someone who's behind the times yeah. in the next decade. Yeah. No, I th I think what people look. It seems to me that one. There, there are really two goals. There are more, probably, if I thought of them at the moment. Uh, one is certainly to make people ready to learn special, uh, to, to receive special knowledge. Right. That is, to become specialized, to become professional. This is the introduction to mm -hmm. that. The other one is to allow people to know what to do with their free time. To, I'll put it in a better way, to know, to, to give people some taste of what it means to be happy. Okay. Uh, you know, yesterday I said goodbye to our seniors, to many of them. Mm -hmm. They've been happy here. They say that and they mean it. They know what it means to, to be happy with what you're doing. It means to be deeply involved in what you're doing. It means to know how to live with with a community, how to make friends, 
not to friend people, which is <laughs> beyond <laughs> belief stupid, oh, uh. but to be what it means to have friends and to live with them, to form a community, not a community necessary that you live in, but a community that you work in. Um, they have experience of that. And I think it's the business of a college and a good high school mm -hmm. to teach people what it means to live with each other and to be deeply interested in what you're doing so that when it comes to choosing a profession, they won't go for something that will make them unhappy. Do most of your students just become academics? No. Oh, no, interesting. Not at all. Not at all. Oh. Uh, how should I put it? I'll say, perhaps, unfortunately, we'll become lawyers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> how should I put it, unfortunately? <laughs> well, uh, well uh, you, you seem to, you, you, maybe you got to be with, that, with yeah. It's statistically, that's not oh, quite true. But oh, interesting. It's a large percentage. Yeah. Well, you have, you have a, an axe to grind. You may have an axe to grind with lawyers, but you certainly have an axe to grind with um, what you, the, those who you call intellectuals. Um, yes. <laughs> can I quote, can I quote you here? Yes. Um, you call intellectuals, uh, or rather academics, people who roar like lions, think like sheep, yeah. act like monkeys. Did I say that? That is, you did say that. It's right in here in this book, published in print. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, I, uh, sometimes I think so I'd like to meet that woman. Yeah, that's, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, that's why I asked to interview you. Um, so what, you're, so you're, you're being a bit cheeky. What, um... What, what, when you talk about intellectuals, because you're an intellectual, I mean, what? Well, I hope not. Yeah, obviously. okay. No, I think of intellectuals as opposed to people who inquire, who think. Intellectuals, look, clearly this is a somewhat private use of the sure. word, you know. Um, but the construction of thought, uh, of concepts, thought constructions, mm. is not the same as discovering truth. One is willful and the other one is receptive. I think thinking should be receptive, not willful. I think that's one way to put it. Intellectuals tend to be willful. They value their own inventiveness. Mm -hmm. The word, another word I don't like very much is they're creative. When you're thinking, you're not supposed to be creative. You're supposed to be truthful. Oh, and and you you well, that's interesting. You also uh, these are related points, but I think you you um, see something wrong in the willingness of intellectuals to just take positions and stick with. Them. In fact, the one, I'm going to paraphrase, but one line you have is intellectuals wear againstness like a uniform. They always define themselves by what they're that's, against, which that's is cool. That's just stuff. an observation, which yeah. is generally true. It's isn't an accident, it seems to mm. me, that intellectuals tend to oppose whatever is happening. Right. That the president is stupid, that Congress is stupid, everybody's stupid, I'm smart. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's not right. Uh, and uh, the distance between uh, those who think of themselves as intellectuals and what we think of as ordinary people, mm. among them you and me and you, mm. <laughs> uh, is too great. Whereas if, you, you know, if you're interested in the way things are, you should have a lot of sympathy for ordinary people's griefs. What about the, those, so those position-taking intellectuals who 
and, and you've talked about politicization before, but I mean, obviously a lot of um, the intellectuals you talk about are on, on the left or even the hard left, and a yeah. lot of the way they frame their political or intellectual projects is yeah. the, um, the emancipation of, of people of the oppressed. Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do, you, do you think that that's... Well, I'm not sure that the top-down emancipation okay. isn't a contradiction of terms. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm. And uh, generally, in, when it's worked, to me, the great paradigm of its working and the evils is uh, the French Revolution and the Terror. The Terror was an intellectually constructed uh, event mm. which was very, quite explicitly uh, based on Rousseau's. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an example. Rousseau is sort of the arch intellectual to me. <laughs> so are you, um, oh, interesting. So would you describe yourself as Burkean in some sense? Then you like Yeah, Burke? yeah. Ex yeah. Uh, really, uh, if you have a look at this, you'll see yeah. in the end, I'll own up to this. If it's got to have a name, it's Burkean. Okay. But that has to do with a certain uh, it's got more to do with a certain predisposition toward the uh, toward maintaining traditions, not only uh, uh, because of their wisdom, but partly simply because they are traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, there are things in Burke which don't seem right to me, but it's it is true he was in favor of the American Revolution, mm -hmm. and that seems to be typical. That is, our revolution was a re revolution of conservatives. Mm -hmm. So, if I can ask you a bit about yourself, Eva, where, where were you born and raised? I was born in Berlin mm -hmm. and uh, grew up there for the first 12 years of my life. And then I landed, uh, you know, as a refugee from the Nazis. Oh, wow. And grew up in Brooklyn. I went to Brooklyn really? College. Then I went to Yale. So, what year did you emigrate then? You got in out of 41. Germany. You got out of Germany in 41. Very late. Wow. Yeah. Uh, your whole family, get, can I ask your whole family again? Uh, not the whole family, right. some of them were, uh, died in concentration wow. camps. Wow. But my, the, uh, the close family, my father and brother, and my mother, we, we all landed in America. What was your experience like as a, as a child, an, an immigrant in Brooklyn? <laughs> I, look, <laughs> how to put it, I was a young, as a child, uh, belonged to what one would call the professional bourgeoisie, okay. German bourgeoisie. Sure. Another way to put it, I was a snob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was not altogether happy in Brooklyn. It seemed uh -huh. to me vulgar. It was Jewish in a way. I'm Jewish myself, yes, of yes. course. I didn't quite appreciate. You know, the German Jews had a deep. Uh, animus against the Eastern Jews, okay. you know, Polish Jews, and, I, and some of that I carried with me. Um, I, uh, I was not happy in Brooklyn. Now that I look back on it, it's all nostalgia. It was mm. wonderful. Oh. Brooklyn College was a terrific school. Did you fall in with some of the New York intellectuals? Did you? No. Ever, no. Uh, I was. Uh, I went to a communist cell for a while, as okay. any self-respecting teenager would at this <laughs> really um, Very good. And uh, um, I had wonderful professors, particularly my classics professor, who put me 
you know, onto my career mm -hmm. as, as an early as a classicist and archaeologist. So Brooklyn College was a remarkable school. Um, and uh, then I went to Yale, and mm -hmm. that, I was happy there because I wasn't there most of the time. I was in Athens. Mm -hmm. And then I found St. John's, and all this happened in very short order. When, when you were uh, young in Brooklyn, were you always drawn to the life of the mind? Did you ever feel more politically well, I, active? I was in an intensely uh, uh, intellectual sure. kid, yeah. Which intellectual? The one that you don't like or the, the one that you... <laughs> the one I don't like. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, I went uh, for three years, you know, in, in those days, I don't know if that's still the case, uh, New York kids went to summer camp because mm. New York's unbearable in the mm -hmm. summer. And I went for three years to a, to a camp, um, which was mostly uh, most of whose members were uh, refugees, hmm. German German Jewish refugees, and we were a pretty, I might say, a highly conceited and very intelligent group of kids, and you know, growing out of that, and and I was discovering hmm. that this kind of uh, a self-conceit, the kind of uh, pride in one's cleverness that we all had. We were clever, mm -hmm. I guess, that this is not uh, the way to live in America and that there are better ways. And I was, uh, that came to me around then, and I was, I discovered America. In fact, I discovered America in Athens. You want to hear about Yes, it? yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the American excavations of the Athenian Agora, that's the official name, Agora is uh, Greek for marketplace. Mm -hmm. So we were digging up the marketplace of the old city of Athens. Um, was a very recognizably American enterprise. It was run with a sort of precision and dedication mm -hmm. uh, and technological knowledge. Uh, that was sort of the gold standard. Uh, the Germans, who had been the great archaeologists, of course, were defeated. Had been defeated mm -hmm. in the world war. They were just beginning to come back. They didn't have an excavation of their own. We were the great going excavations, mm -hmm. and I learned there what it means to listen to each other, to learn from each other, to do everything as perfectly as possible without being too uppity about it. Uh, I, I think I became an American in Athens. Well, that's so, I, I, I'm somewhere Ralph Waldo Emerson says, we go abroad to become American. Yeah. Which I've been puzzling it, it over makes for sense. a while. Yeah. Except that yeah. uh, this going abroad was really coming to an aspect of America. Right. Uh, because these were Americans. These were Americans. Europe. Yeah, they were yeah. mostly uh, fanatical women. That okay. is fanatically archaeological. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and an absolutely wonderful director of the excavations, who was not, not an, uh, uh, who was a Canadian actually, mm -hmm. but uh, but it was it was being it. Look, maybe a better way to put it, it was initiated into Anglo-Saxon ways. Right. Well, what? And I I've been wondering this as well. Do you think consciously that? that leave, leaving Germany in 1941 and experiencing, um, I mean, and just experiencing the middle of the 20th century as, a, as an intellectual, but also as someone so wrapped up in the actual conflict. I mean, has that affected your trajectory as a thinker in significant ways, would you say? I think very much so, yeah. In, in what way would you say? Well, look, in, largely in the way I just said, discovering America. Right. 
that is to say, seeing that there are ways of life which are not European, uh, which are which are just more workable, not only more kindly and more humane, mm. but also in the end more effective, more mm. efficient. What have been some of the most significant intellectual relationships you've had, either at St. John's or just in well, your life? Uh, the, uh, when I came here, the dean was someone called Jacob Klein, mm -hmm. and uh, he had written uh, on Plato, but also uh, but his main work was uh, on the intellectual revolution that turned antiquity into modernity. Mm -hmm. In other words, what it was that happens in the 16th and 7th century that made, made us moderns what we are, uh, which was largely a question of uh, both a philosophical question, but of course a scientific question. And our program here mm. uh, was very much constructed around this revolution. That is to say, on early, uh, our students learn a lot of 17th century science, because right. they read Newton and many other uh, scientists of that time, and then they go on to, to modern, uh, more modern work. But that was the great discovery for me, oh, how interesting, uh, how and literally world-shaking uh, physics could be. I, oh, you know, wow. I learned, I'd never known any physics. I learned a lot of physics. World shaking, so it affected your even your philosoph your philosophical thinking. Yes, absolutely. Right. But uh, but of course my teaching too, because okay. I was always at a disadvantage. I always had students who knew more than I did. Mm -hmm. But my business was not to be so very focused on the competence, but on the uh, problematic of it. So uh, the way we do science is very much to think about the basis, to think about what it means to quantify mm -hmm. qualities, which is what is basically taking place in science. You know. To give you an example, heat turns into temperature. What happens? <laughs> you know, uh, it's 79 degrees, it's hot. That's interesting. Yeah, so so which is it really? Right. Is it hot because it's 79 uh, degrees yeah, which or the other way around? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, so you've been, you've been at St. John's in some ma in some manner or another since '57. You're going yeah. to Santa Fe to give this yeah. this address to the graduating class, and you you were you were dean for Plus, quite a while. Yeah, uh, almost uh, 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 fifty nine years, but oh. uh, uh, with some years playing with, hooky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what do you what do you, what would you like your legacy to be at St. John's and generally in the humanities? Um, you know, I mean, there are a number of books. Yes. And not for both for my own sake and for my publisher's sake. I would like people yeah. to buy them and read them. <laughs> um, I'll be remembered in this college for a while. Yeah. And then, like everybody else, they'll have more current things to do, which they'll, uh, and I'll be forgotten. It doesn't bother me much. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. I think that. Uh, well, then, you know, every once in a while there's yeah. some revival yes. or something. They, they uh, you know, have an exhibition of my books and they'll have a, maybe a colloquium or something in my name. And then they'll have, they all have everyday things to do. They yeah. can't be thinking of a, a dead tutor. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah. uh, it's not, see, 
you'll think this is peculiar, but let, let me say it outright anyhow. Yes. I'm much more interested in what's going to happen to me. <laughs> where oh, will I end up? Where will you Here end up? Or up there or, or nowhere. What, do you have any... Uh, your preference, yeah, I was gonna say preferences. Preferences up. Yeah. Oh, okay. But you still, you you still wonder. I wonder. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that's probably the best I can do. You know, I make to myself, and I think I probably say something about that there, a distinction between uh, agnostic, agnostic and good faith. Yes. And agnostic and bad faith. Bad faith that not agnostics when they say I just don't know mean and I don't want to think about it right. good faith agnostics say I don't know but it is a major interest to know to think about what comes you know to think about the afterlife well this has been a great talk Eva thanks very much for talking with us Sorry it was very nice of you to come that was Eva Brand talking about her life and work in the liberal arts and philosophy to learn more about Eva, you can purchase one of her many books, as well as find videos of her public addresses, of which there are plenty, on YouTube. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The fearless leader and director of the Howenstein Center, as well as producer of this podcast, is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and records many of the podcast's episodes, including the one you just heard, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.